Welcome to Ben Davis Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Davis, and I'm excited to have a conversation with you about one of my favorite things in the world, movies. This is our deep dive show on the podcast feed where I focus on films that is either honoring an anniversary of some kind or is in some way, shape, or form pertaining to a new release coming out this month. Uh, but before we get to that, I must introduce my guest. He is the managing editor of Cinema Blend, co-host of Real Blend Podcast, author of Release the Snyder Cut, the crazy story behind the fight that saved Zack Snyder's Justice League, and the soon-to-be-released with great power, Mr. Sean O'Connell. What's up, man? Uh, not much. I'm really happy to be here uh, for this deep dive into uh, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, one of my absolute favorite topics to talk about. Uh, well, and I know that you are a huge and passionate fan uh, for this as well, too. So I think this would be a really spirited discussion. Oh, absolutely, man. And thank you so much for coming on. It's great to yeah. have you again. Uh, so this is your second time on the show. And the first time you were on here, I didn't actually get the chance to ask you the question that I ask all new guests. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I have to make up for that now. So, Sean, I'm going to put you on the spot. What is your favorite movie and why? All right. So... A film critic's answer to this changes often because often. I've said often I, I talk I say this a lot of times on the Real Blind podcast that that movies don't change but we do right so yep. a movie that you saw twenty years ago you're a totally different person when you watch it but but blanket statement my answer to that what is your favorite movie of all time has been uh, John McTiernan's first Die Hard which to me was a flawless action film. Uh, with exactly the type of hero that I like, sarcastic, uh, in over their head, kind of the blue collar everyman. I thought the Bruce Willis sort of nailed that persona. And when I saw it, it was one of the earliest R-rated movies I, I, I've seen. If I remember correctly, it's, it is the first R-rated movie that I saw in a theater. Really? So it was really special to me for, for a number of different reasons. However, I will say that recently, uh, because I am such a Marvel junkie and a fan of what the MCU has put together uh, for a brief amount of time. I replaced Die Hard with Avengers Endgame because I was blown away by what they were able to accomplish in bringing the Infinity Saga to a close. Uh, and I, over time, have discussed with people what's better, Infinity War or Endgame. And I admit that Infinity War is probably a better made movie, but the back half of Endgame and the number of stuff that happens in it is so mind blowing to me uh, that I give it the edge. And then it didn't last at the top very long because once Spider-Man No Way Home came out, <laughs> it replaced it because I, I cannot wrap my brain around the fact that there's a movie that exists where the three Spider-Men, you know, from our lifetime uh, share uh, share the screen and fight at the Statue of Liberty against, you know, the, the, the main core villains from the Spider-Man films. It's just it's an impossible film and it exists and I love everything about it. You know. There's so many things that I, I want to talk to you about, about everything you said. First off, is Die Hard a Christmas movie, you think? Oh, 100%. Yes, 100%. without question. Without me, and brother, question. me and my brother have this argument all the time. And I think he has kind of reeled me in to believe that it is a Christmas movie. It is. It uses uh, Ode to God, which is one of the, you know, a seminal uh, Christmas hymn as its driving factor. It's part of its score. Uh, obviously, it's set at Christmas time. It disrupts a Christmas party. Mm -hmm. um, when he kills a terrorist, he writes ho, ho, ho across him. I have I a mean, machine gun. Come on. <laughs> yes. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. Yeah. And also, it's 
really, it's about Christmas time. I associate with being about family, really. Sure. And what is he there for? He's there to save his marriage. Absolutely. So, yep. I mean, I, and Hans Gruber has one of my favorite lines in that where Theo is trying to break through all of the magnetic locks that are protecting the safe and they get through almost all of them. But then the last two essentially need the, the power to be turned off. And Hans um, in a very uncharacteristic uh, bit of levity, he says, uh, it's Christmas time, Theo. It's the time of miracles. So <laughs> have faith and call me when you found my detonators. And I just love it. I just, it's a great reminder in the midst of all this chaos that like, oh, it is Christmas time. Yeah. <laughs> it's, without question, I think it's a, it's a Christmas movie. Yeah. I, I, it's hard to, it's, it's getting harder and harder to debate the fact that that is indeed a Christmas movie, but sure. You know, going back to Spider-Man No Way Home, it is wild absolutely wild that that is a movie that it exists like i got to see we got to see our favorite spider-men on screen together how yeah. bizarre is that it's wild and even inside of the that reality there are cool beats and moments that i never dreamed i'd be able to see because time had passed like yeah i'll give you that like toby gets to fight the lizard, which he never got to fight in his regular franchise. Um, there's a moment where Dr. Octopus grabs uh, Toby and Andrew. Now, Andrew's never seen Dr. Octopus before. Yeah. <laughs> this is his first encounter with Dr. Octopus. Um, those little beats, you know, are so important to me as a Spider-Man fan of just like, God, this is the first time that Tom Holland's Spider-Man is going to face uh, Electro and the lizard, you know, yeah. and Sandman. So, all of that becoming uh, canon is is super exciting to me. It's and bizarre. for them to come up with a reason to to do it, you know, with the with the with the spell going wrong and bringing everybody in, you know, it takes a bit of a a, a logical leap, yes. but not not so much that I was like, oh, you're ham fisting this. Like when it happened, I was like, oh, all right, that's a really clever way for you to bring this. Bring there's these a reason in. for it. Yeah, it's not just there for the sake of being there there's a reason for it and i will add to those great moments when andrew garfield spider-man saves mj I, I can't help but tear up every time i see it as someone who loves those movies you know it's, it's incredible perfect. yeah no it's perfect to bring closure to them in that sense to find a way to do it uh, and have it make sense is really fantastic it is great it's great incredible but moving on to our, our movie this week, we're going to talk about what I think is the main cause for the reason we live in the golden age of superhero films today, Spider-Man 2002, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary this upcoming month, which is insane to me. That's crazy. Uh, Spider-Man is directed by Sam Raimi. It stars Tobey Maguire, Willem Dafoe, Kirsten Dunst, James Franco, Cliff, uh, Cliff Robertson, and Rosemary Harris and J.K. Simmons. If you aren't familiar with Spider-Man, the plot synopsis reads like such, according to Google. Spider-Man centers on a student, Peter Parker, who, after being bitten by a genetically altered spider, gains superhuman strength and spider-like ability to cling to any surface. He vows to use his abilities to fight crime, coming to understand the words of his beloved Uncle Ben with great power, comes great responsibility 
And I kind of buried the lead when I said that this is the main cause for the golden age of superhero films that we live in today. But I, I stand by that statement. You know, when you look back at 1997 and the disaster that was Batman and Robin, I wouldn't say it killed the genre, which is something that often, that's a title that often gets stuck to Batman and Robin. But I really think it was more of a, a wet blanket and there was still mm -hmm. some spark left. You know, sure, we had Blade come out like the next year in 1998, but that was mostly seen at the time as being Wesley Snipes action movie with vampires and less of a, of a comic book movie. Uh, we also had the first X-Men movie hit in 2000 when, you know, with a very positive critical and audience response, also making a pretty good profit of, I think it was nearly $300 million on a $75 million budget. Mm -hmm. But to me, it was this Spider-Man movie that really captured the imaginations and the hearts of the pop cultural zeitgeist at the time. You know, it was just one of those water cooler movies that made kids, teenagers and adults and the elderly react in the same way. It's very much a, a four quadrant type of film and mm -hmm. they reacted the same way and wonder that they were seeing a man swing above New York city, you know, and the box office results prove this. It grossed $825 million at the worldwide box office where it was pretty rare at this time that a movie got close to a billion dollars. Right. Um, and I think it became the highest grossing film domestically that year. And then worldwide, it was like the third behind, mm -hmm. I believe it was Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, and uh, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. And that makes sense. Two big franchise sequels at that point. Yeah, huge. And, you know, when we look at both the largest success stories of both DC and Marvel, I think they owe this film a great deal of gratitude. So, Sean, when was the first time you, you saw this film, and how does it compare to how you feel about it now, ultimately? Oh, I was reviewing movies when this came out, so I saw it at a press screening, and I couldn't believe um, that they were making a live-action Spider-Man movie because he's always been my favorite character since my childhood. Like, I've, I've adored everything about him. I collected comics growing up and I collected every Spider-Man title, like weekly trips to the comic book store in my town and picking up all the newest titles, but, you know, filling in the, my, my back catalog catalog of them. I also collected um, X-Men and random titles like West coast Avengers and, and things like that, new mutants and stuff. But, but I collected every Spider-Man category. I just loved Peter Parker and I loved the character. So I went into it with the eye of a rabid fan of how much are they going to get right with this? And so I had nitpicks. I had real nitpicks with it that prevented me from, from recognizing it as, you know, the, a truly spectacular Spider-Man movie. Um, I thought Raimi did better with, with Spider-Man two. Uh, and yet I still had a couple of issues with the way that they handled that. And we can get into some of those if you want to uh, in a little bit, but what I've come to appreciate so much more, about the impact that Spider-Man has had on the uh, comic book movie genre and what it taught studios is that the films that you were talking about prior to this, uh, the Batman films at Warner Brothers, Superman, uh, even the X-Men films or Blade even, uh, those were marketed, they were starting to, well, Superman and Batman were marketed primarily on the actors because Hollywood was still very much invested in uh, A-list talent uh, more so than the role. So it was Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson 
as opposed to you're coming to see a Batman and Joker movie, right? For the for the mainstream audience. And for the um for Superman, obviously Christopher Reeve, you know, was be was the be all and end all for that franchise. But what Spider-Man taught them, uh, and that what Marvel believed in at that time is that eventually they're gonna get to a point where audiences are gonna come out because they want to see the character. Uh, and the actor cast isn't as important, you know, like Tobey Maguire was a good actor and they knew they needed somebody to sell Peter Parker. But when you have a superhero who, whose face is masked completely and Spider-Man would be one of the first uh, to appear in a feature length film where his features were completely hidden, uh, people have to invest in the character. Uh, and I think the success of that gave some of the studios more confidence, especially Marvel Studios some more confidence where they could branch into um, Iron Man, who again, their face would be, and they came up with that technology to show Downey, you know, in the head shell basically. Um, but it gave them the confidence to gamble on characters that yes, they had the rights to, but that also maybe weren't household names, you know, and that's why the MCU kind of begins with uh, Thor and Captain America and, and Iron Man building towards an Avengers film. If not for the success of Spider-Man and if not for Sam Raimi laying down the blueprint, of how to do it, uh, so many of the movies that we're watching nowadays wouldn't exist or would not be as good as they as they are right now. Yeah, and I, I completely agree. You know, there's a lot of truths to that statement, a lot of truths. And, you know, when I think of the MCU, one of the things that I think of is the tone. Mm. And that Marvel tone really got their blueprint, like you were saying, from this film. Sure. Balancing the, the levity with the real world aspects of it, as we see Peter Parker deal with in this film. Well, and because that's the hook of Peter Parker, right? Yeah. Like he has to be a, a regular kid who has all of these everyday problems that you're supposed to associate with. Like that was the genius of Stan Lee when he created the character of I want him to have money problems. Uh, I want him to have girl problems. You know, I want teenagers to pick up this book and read it and see themselves in it. So had they started with a Hulk movie, you know, or a Thor movie where you have an Asgardian in the lead, it's God. <laughs> could we have put ourselves into, you know, the shoes of that character in a way that audiences so deftly were able to uh, with, with Peter, you know, and, and there's a reason why Sam Raimi was the right choice for it because he makes Peter suffer. Yeah. Uh, throughout the course of Spider-Man one, you know, like, and especially in two, like two things get even worse for him. <laughs> uh, I had a conversation with uh, Lord Miller when uh, we were talking about into the Spider-Verse and they singled out Spider-Man two as one of their influences because they couldn't believe going back and rewatching it uh, of how much Sam Raimi just tortured peter parker like they were like how much bad stuff can go <laughs> wrong in this guy's life before he's gonna snap and in a way he does kind of snap because he loses loses yeah. the power and sort of you know puts the suit away and you get this amazing sequence that the raindrops keep falling on my head where peter feels happy you know for the first time in maybe uh, one and a half movies it's kind of genius um so you know i think some of that is fortuitous like they chose to make a spider-man movie but in choosing to make a movie about your most relatable character in the in the Marvel collection, you've also set the first foot forward with a uh, a grounded uh, and a realistic and a, a 
based in a city that many can recognize and having a lot of the same problems that many of us have on our day-to-day in a day-to-day lives. So it was lucky. It was lucky and it was kind of genius. Well, I think there's a reason characters like Spider-Man and Batman are the two most, I think, especially now most iconic and biggest moneymakers for their studios is because they are real people that have real problems and suffer despite, you know, one having the power of gods and Spider-Man essentially, and Batman having all the money in the world. And it's those relatable factors that make people keep coming back to them over and over and over again. Yeah. And it could speak to why filmmakers are having the hardest time figuring out Superman. Yeah. Because he he doesn't have those flaws. You know, he doesn't have the things that make him interesting as a character. Which for me, you know, you know this, I'm a huge Snyder guy and that version of Superman I found to be not only the best iteration of that character, but also the most relatable because despite having all those godlike powers, he was a person who wasn't sure of himself. He was struggling, but you saw how the audience responded. They didn't necessarily like it. And it kind of puts, or they were divided. I wouldn't necessarily say they didn't like it, but it kind of puts the studios in a very hard position of what do we do with this character? Right. Right. Yeah, because because I thought that the element that Zach leaned into the most and and I didn't honestly truthfully pick up on it through my own viewings of it. It wasn't until someone pointed out after the fact that it's an immigrant story, you know, of of how difficult it is for an immigrant to feel at home uh, in a new location. And when you started to view it through that lens point, his powers don't they can't help him in that situation. Right. Like his powers do nothing to make him feel comfortable amongst the human race. If anything, Um, they might make him feel a little bit more insecure of how do I handle this and how do I hold it back? Absolutely. Yes. And all of that subtext is there. Um, And that's what makes Man of Steel special. But it's also that's not tailored to the popcorn crowd. You know, that's tailored to the to the audience that is going to be very happy to watch this movie 10 times and learn something new every single time. So and I think there's a place in the superhero genre, the comic book genre for both of those, you know, Absolutely. I want Logan uh, and, and I want guardians of the galaxy, you know, like yeah. <laughs> why not, you know, find the like, filmmakers that tell those stories and, and let them do it. We, and we recently had Spider-Man no way home. Fantastic movie. Got super emotional in it. And then the Batman fantastic movie got super emotional in it. And you see yeah. how different they are tonally, Yep. but how it's much so I true. love both of those, you know, and I don't know. It's just, it's crazy to me because I look back to all these years, you know, I think speaking of relatability, you know, the first time I, I saw Spider-Man was, it was the opening weekend. Um, and it was the first time I ever remember going to, to see a movie and literally every single showtime was completely sold out. You know, we, we tried to go see it on a Saturday and every showtime was completely full, even the late showtime, which was odd to me at the time being, you know, eight years old. Yeah. Uh, but we, <laughs> we had to go back to the theater on the Saturday or the Sunday and we saw it and it was packed. And I'm talking like people were sitting in the aisles kind of packed. Okay. You okay. know, and what I remember about that screening was, was how captured I was by everything. You know, it felt like a man was really, again, swinging through New York City Right. And it was really going on. And 
I could see myself being Spider-Man. You know, yeah. I could really relate to that character. And it felt like pure magic to someone who was eight years old. You know, I was, it's all I was thinking about that summer, except for Star Wars. Cause of course that, that was my first love. Mm-hmm. Um, but I watch this original Spider-Man film now. And I think the reason I love this movie so much is that while there are things that I think are a little dated, mm. uh, like the musical choices, you know, Nickelback, no one likes Nickelback now. Macy Gray, Macy <laughs> yeah. Gray at the parade. Macy Gray, <laughs> yes. Uh, or the some of the CGI at that parade too. Nickelback, that's great. <laughs> hey man, what? I, I'm not gonna lie. I I do like this song for this movie. I'm not gonna oh. lie. No, Goblin CGI, which you just brought up, Goblin CGI is is extremely dated. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, you know, there's there's this timeless quality to this movie that makes it feel magical to me. Sure, it's it's campy, it's hokey, it's it's cheesy in parts. Sure. But I think that's why it works so well is because it's so damn sincere and it wears its heart on its sleeve. And it, it kind of took that Richard Donner Superman mm-hmm. approach. Um, even though I'm not a big fan of those movies um, and it perfected it because again, it, it's totally sincere and ultimately it's totally Spider-Man without a doubt. It's, it's a, it's an extremely faithful recreation of amazing fantasy 15. Yes. Uh, straight up through, you know, him going to the wrestling match to challenge uh, in this case, bone saw, uh, <laughs> Boom, which is always ready yeah. <laughs> just like a hyper you know version of what was presented in the comics um and it doesn't try to tweak the uncle ben you know uh mistake essentially that teaches peter uh you know his ultimate lesson essentially and it has tremendous casting for aunt may and for and for uncle ben oh yeah it has good casting across the board for mary jane and harry uh and then you know I would argue, and even through his performance in No Way Home, like there's no one better than Willem Dafoe for Norman Osborn. You know, he ruined that role for anyone else. Yeah, it's true. I <laughs> mean, to the point where you know, when when Kevin Feige is saying we want to bring these characters back, there's no one else who can play them. He, you know, lumping Melina into that category as well too. Of like, we're not going to try to recast Otto Octavius. You know, yeah, we're going to bring these guys back, and I think Dafoe. I, I honestly believe without exaggeration that Willem Dafoe deserved an Oscar nomination for supporting actor for his work in Spider-Man No Way Home. I mean, and I know it was never going to happen, but he was he was terrific. That scene alone where he, you know, Peter senses that he's about to turn Ugh. and he goes, that's some neat trick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's Norman's great. on sabbatical, honey. Like, it's, it's so perfect. <laughs> that, whole deli- that whole delivery of all of that stuff. We don't need to be fixed. Yeah. It's just menacing, you know? The punches and, and to the it. face and the laughter. So I'm, I'm watching the Moon Knight series on Disney Plus, and it requires Oscar Isaac to uh, change personalities uh he suffers uh, dissociative uh, identity disorder and he he does something that christopher reeve got a lot of credit for in terms of the physical way that he portrays clark kent and mm-hmm. superman and it's just a simple way of how you hold yourself how your body changes you know um and oscar is doing that a lot when he has to change between 
this this one character steven who is um very you know confused and is uncomfortable in violent situations and this character mark who is a mercenary and he does it with just his face you mm-hmm. know he does it with his face and his posture and that's what that's what um defoe does but there's an amazing point uh which breaks my heart in his line delivery in no way home after he gets the injection uh, and it brings him back and he looks around at what's going on. And he kind of very quietly says like, what have I done? You know, like he doesn't know he's, he was the goblin for a long time. It's just tremendous acting, you know, like those, those little moments are so brilliant and, and it all is rooted in his initial work in, in the first Spider-Man. Yeah. It's, incredible work that i think at the time you know there was the best villain i think was seen as in a comic book film was jack nicholson as the joker sure and i i think it's fair to say that willem dafoe just completely topped that in every aspect without a doubt and then personally i i put melina above him to be honest melina in in spider-man 2 was outstanding i will not Um, die a monster yeah right exactly just fantastic it is such a great redemption story really yes exactly because i love even to the arrogance of when peter goes to visit him in his lab because harry's kind of hooked it up you know pulled the strings for them to talk and he doesn't want peter there but then he he totally connects with how intelligent peter is Mm -hmm. um and almost sees like a bit of him you know at that age uh and then he tells rosie like i love this boy rosie he's my guy um, and then at the his his arrogance and his confidence just get the better of him during his, his experiment. And he always believes that, like, he has the power to fix it. But the the corruption of the of the arms gets gets the better of him. And it's a, it's a tragic figure. It's an it outstanding is. tragic figure with it, with a, like you said, a, a fantastic redemption arc mm-hmm. uh, in the final moments. And even in No Way Home, fantastic redemption. Yep, exactly. Fantastic. Exactly. Uh, speaking of fantastic. The Rotten Tomato score for this movie, it sits at 90%. Okay. Uh, with the consensus being, not only does Spider-Man provide a good dose of web-swinging fun, it also has a heart thanks to the combined charms of director Sam Raimi and star Tobey Maguire. Now, is this a score that you agree with? Would you go higher, lower? Where do you end up on this spectrum? I would go higher. Um, I think that 10% is is probably critics who just aren't going to get on board for a superhero film, which is their prerogative. You know, there's, there's some that no matter how good the picture is, uh, they're just not going to want to sit through one. Um, But for the amount of stuff that it accomplishes and the technological advances that it makes to, to convincingly make an audience member believe that this man is actually swinging through a city. Yeah. uh, These were cutting edge visual effects and this was uh, cutting edge production design. Um, I would probably put it, I'm going to put it somewhere more like the 92, 93, if only because I, I think that Spider-Man 2 needs to be higher than that. And so I don't want to go too high on one uh, and, and I'll, I'll save two for another one. Yeah, I I think for me, I, I'd end up kind of in that same range that you are between, except I'd go probably 90 to around 92, 93. Okay. Um, I think this is a fine score for it. But like you said, reading through a lot of those reviews, a lot of the negative ones were, I just, they, they were complaining a lot about the visual effects aspect of it. Okay. And there's not on board for a superhero film. And again, that, that is their prerogative. 
It was also a little bit heavy handed with the New York pride yes. because it came out in the in the wake of the September 11th attacks. Mm-hmm. And at that time, the whole world embraced New York, you know, oh, yeah. so um, and, and so Ramey can't be faulted for putting those elements in there. You know, but the you mess with us, you mess with Spider-Man, you mess with all of us kind of thing. (laughs) The sentiment is beautiful, but in the moment, it's probably a little bit heavy. (laughs) It's very heavy handed, almost as heavy handed as the final shot of the movie, which is him on a flagpole with the American flag. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, it's a Um, bit much. But I, I found it interesting when I was looking at the Rotten Tomato score from the critics, the audience score was surprisingly low it's 67 which is still positive but generally when a score is that low for fans it typically means there's a bit of a divide which i found to be odd because most people that i talk to typically really like this movie yeah i thought that was a consensus that seems really low to me yeah Um, and the only thing i can attribute it to potentially is a younger audience who's been raised on mcu movies going back to watch it and feeling that it might just be slow, you know, yeah. uh, not packing in as much stuff as the new MCU movies do, you know, maybe that's what it is, uh, you because know, pointing was... out the, the dated visual effects that we've sort of hinted at to this point. Yeah. And it, it does uh, take about an hour for him to get into the actual Spider-Man suit. Sure. When I was watching the movie, it was last night. I noticed Man, it really does take about an hour for him to get in his suit, and it's a two-hour movie. But you don't really notice unless you're looking for it, because this movie goes at such a pace. And there aren't a ton of action scenes. No. It's, it's, you know, which is fine. It's character development. Um, But there is the the Osborne Fair, essentially, where Mm -hmm. he fights Goblin for the first time. There's the fire rescue, you know, where he has to go back in and rescue the baby, (laughs) which ends up being goblin in a, in a shawl, which I always find fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I think really the bridge, you know, and when you get to uh, the bridge and the trolley car and then, you know, their fight uh, that follows it, which is, I think, a tremendous sequence. Like, I think that that fight is outstanding. It's brutal. It's very violent. Yes, it is. Um, um, but there, but in that, before that fight, the, the element on the bridge comes to my biggest complaint. Can I get to my biggest complaint about Spider-Man? Uh, or are we waiting for another time? Let's save it for the categories or Sounds for good. the okay. award section. Sounds Rather. good. I'm ready, but I'm interested to see what it is. <laughs> it's uh, a good one. It's, it's what prevented me from fully embracing the movie for a very long period of time. Hmm. Now I'm That's curious. A tease. That's a tease. Now I'm curious, but we're going to move on to our fun facts here. And normally it is just me and somebody else like me that it just talks about these fun little facts that I've looked up and goes over them. It's just fun talking points. But today I am joined by someone who was quite literally wrote the book on this. So I'm mm-hmm. interested to see what all is true, what all is like half truths. You know, it, it's I'm excited. I'll try my best. <laughs> So this is the first film to gross over $100 million opening weekend. And at the time, no movie had done so, even when adjusted for inflation. That's pretty wild, considering that Star Wars and Titanic had come out. Correct. Titanic had legs. Um, That thing made its money over the course of 
multiple months. I can remember Titanic staying at the top of the box office for, I want to say like 16 weeks. Yep. So that was just a behemoth that wouldn't go away. Um, Spider-Man was definitely one of those projects that was front loaded. That opening weekend was insane. And I have great stories in the book coming up um, from the executives at Sony uh, in, back in Los Angeles, tracking those numbers coming across for opening weekend. So it's tradition uh, for a big movie like this, where the stars and the director uh, and some of the producers will get in a van and drive around to LA theaters, surprise some of the people in the auditoriums, check and see how full they are kind of thing. And then they retreat to like a steakhouse and they just wait for the numbers to roll in. And the first few numbers start coming in from the New York, the early New York shows. And the, the main box office analyst for Sony was sitting at the table and every couple of hours just kicking up what the expected, like at first it was like, we're going to open to 45. Oh my God, we're going to open to 55. All right, we're going to open to 70, you know, and then, and it just kept going, going, going in. And they couldn't believe it. They honestly couldn't believe it because they, this wasn't a proven property. It wasn't yeah. a proven, to, you know, you have to remember that that was a gamble back then for them to take on uh, Spider-Man. But he, Marvel had had some success with Blade and X-Men. So they were starting to establish the brand, you know, so some people were coming out for Spider-Man. Some people were coming out for Marvel. Um, and they just did a tremendous job of marketing that film, of really hitting into who this character is and why you needed to go see it. Um, but the urgency to go see it on opening weekend was something pretty rare for a film. And, and Spider-Man absolutely capitalized on it. Yeah. And like, I don't remember the news or anything like that, because, again, I was eight years old. But I can tell you the feeling and the feeling was throughout my small town of Wilson, North Carolina was that it was just ecstatic. Yeah. It was just this excitement level that had reached a fever pitch. And then when I went to school after seeing an opening weekend, that's all the students were talking about. It's all the parents were talking about. It was, sure, sure. it was insane. You know, it, it was, it just goes to show you, you know, what the superhero genre can be. If you have people who care about it, put all their efforts into it and now look what it is it's the juggernaut but i know we're only going back 20 years but you have to remember that the the media landscape has changed drastically like yes they didn't have streaming to compete against at that point when a big movie opened at the at the theaters that was your weekend plan you know mm -hmm. like there are plenty more options for people to choose from nowadays and that can cut into let's say you know judiciously 30% of, of a box office that a movie might have enjoyed uh, back in 2002. It's a lot of people, you know, oh, yeah. um, who are just deciding, oh, I'm not going to necessarily go that weekend. But there was a time in 2002 was kind of like the heart of it, where whatever the big movie was, you know, in theaters at that time, people went to go see it for opening weekend. And mm -hmm. Spider-Man just knocked it out of the park. And could you imagine if the next Sam Raimi movie, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, opened up with only $100 million opening weekend? Right. What? I know. Now it's considered a failure. <laughs> yeah. Now it would be considered a failure. It just yeah. goes to show you how much things have changed over. Yeah. But that's, years. that's movie specific. You know, mm -hmm. like if, if Sonic two had opened to a hundred million, they'd be, oh, through, you know, over the, the moon. Roof. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, that's the standard that Marvel has set for themselves now at this point. It's a very, very high standard. Yeah. Um, in the wake of the terror attacks on September 11th, 2020 or 2021, 2001. Wow. Mm -hmm. uh, Sony recalled teaser posters, which 
showed a close-up of Spider-Man's face with New York City skyline, including uh, predominantly the World Trade Center towers reflected in his eyes. Not all the posters were recovered, however, and the ones still at large are now highly prized collector's items. Yes, that is true. And I am trying to get one myself, and they are very expensive nowadays. And they were given out as thank you prizes to almost anybody who worked on the film. Like there's people in the marketing department who just have framed versions of it um, because they knew in the moment it was going to be worth something. Uh, Sony very much wanted to lean into during the marketing of Spider-Man, the fact that he was a New York presence. Mm -hmm. Um, Superman had Metropolis and Kansas to a certain extent, um, but the fictional city of Metropolis, Batman was always Gotham. You know, this was a New York hero and they really wanted the New York icons to play a significant role. And you remember the video, uh, the trailer oh, yeah. that was shot, um, which was groundbreaking in that time. And the marketing department was very proud about this too, that they okayed uh, additional footage to be shot just for the trailer. Like it, it, trailers at that time were just clips from the movie, you know, compiled existing clips from the movie put together into a montage. This was a specifically designed uh, and shot with with a second unit crew to do the bank heist. And then the the bank robbers are getting away in a helicopter. The helicopter gets snagged by a web uh, and then it gets stuck between a giant web that's between the two, the, the Twin Towers, essentially. And of course, when the Twin Towers are attacked, Sony realizes they have to take this down. They have to, you know, but you can find it. It's on YouTube. Um, but Sam Raimi's crew, his production designer, his cinematographer, they all worked on that because they wanted the tone of that trailer to match the tone of what you were going to get in the movie. Um, and it was a, I thought really, you know, clever way to market a new hero. This was going to be their introduction to Spider-Man and incorporate elements of New York city as much as possible. Uh, and then it just became impossible after the September 11th attacks. Yeah. And I think you can still find that trailer on YouTube, right? If I'm not yeah, mistaken. It, yep. It's out there very easily. And, and again, you can find these posters, the posters are available on uh, eBay quite often. It's just a matter of they might go for somewhere around $200, especially if they're in really good shape. Yeah. Might have to, uh, you might have to talk uh, Dave the Film Junkie into letting you have his. <laughs> yes, I feel like he'd, he should send it to me. You know, <laughs> come on, Dave. You don't want it that badly. I know he says he has it right there in his studio. So yeah, I'll fly out there and get it from him. <laughs> One of the chief difficulties that Tobey Maguire experienced in the now famous upside down kissing scene was that his sinuses kept filling up with water and it was, you know, performed during like a torrential downpour. So like, I can imagine that would be difficult. And, you know, when I was a kid, I was like, oh, that's so awesome. You know, kissing your, your crush, like in a super romantic way. Sure. But watching that as an adult now, I'm like, no, like no. I would get water all in my nose. I wouldn't be able to breathe. That would be very difficult. So it's that's a strange so scene. Yeah, well, that's a strange scene for a couple of different reasons, because, you know, at the start of that scene, when they are talking outside of the diner uh, that Mary Jane works in before she leaves to go down that alley and then the guys follow her, it's a sunny day. Like it's, you know, it's not raining in the least bit. But then the moment that she's in the uh, alleyway, it, a storm erupts and, and soaks them down, essentially. Yeah. So Kirsten Dunst has talked about the fact that it was one of the earliest things that they shot. And she remembers it being 
frigid cold, you know, for them shooting in that element. And of course, she has to be wearing uh, a thin shirt and just soaked in water kind of thing. Um, and yeah, and the mask was always a problem for uh, the costume designers and for the actors and stunt people who had to wear it because um, they they realized in the course of putting it together that this was the very first time that a an actor's face was going to be completely covered. Uh, and so how do you give them the ability to to breathe, uh, to drink, to uh, communicate? He, you know, they, they talked about the fact that like, if an actor has been doing something for a long period of time and and they're tiring out, you can see it in their eyes. You can see the wear and tear. But if a stuntman has been doing a, something for Spider-Man for a long period of time and you can't see their face, you can't gauge how much more they have in them. So they finally come up with ways to design to remove the eyepieces uh, and to uh, implement a straw system that allowed them to drink. But it didn't help with the upside down kiss because there was nothing they could do beyond like rolling it down and and hoping it would cover his nostrils. I uh, noticed she kept tried in. to do that on like the, the <laughs> yeah. when I was watching. Like it almost seems like it's covering right above his nostrils. Yeah, and I don't know. He should have put nose plugs in or something. But you know, would have been a good listen, idea. It's a seminal moment. Um, I, I guess I'm glad they did it. You know, because it is some. It's, it's a scene that people point to all the time. Iconic. But, uh, but yeah, that one had to be pretty difficult for Tobey Maguire. To yeah. <laughs> Hugh Jackman revealed that he was supposed to have a brief cameo as Wolverine. Uh, Jackman showed up in New York to film the scene, but the entire plan was scrapped when the crew couldn't get access to the Wolverine costume from the original X-Men. I think I've heard him talk about this before. All right. If you have, you're the first one, because I've never heard this one. Really? Uh, I have not heard that Wolverine was supposed to show up. One story that I did hear is that while they were filming Wolverine, an actor named uh, Scott, St what's Scott's last name? It's like Scott Steva or Scott, oh, I'm blanking, his name is in my book. He's a um, cosplayer, but, but like one of those upper echelon cosplayers who would be hired by Marvel to show up for parades or hospital visits. Um, and he always played Spider-Man. He had the body type for Spider-Man and he was a gymnast. And so he was very convincing. And during the filming of uh, X-Men, which filmed before Spider-Man, when they were shooting the Statue of Liberty scene, uh, they put Scott in a Spider-Man costume and they had him run out with the team. Uh, and But the cast didn't know it was happening. So they were totally shocked and, and got a big laugh out of it sort of thing. And then he just ran off. So maybe this is a twist on that story, because I did not hear that Hugh Jackman was going to be uh, be part of Spider-Man. I mean, maybe, maybe it's the case. From what I remember... Whenever I heard him talk about it, it was supposed to be this sort of cameo type thing, almost like Stan Lee does. Okay. Similar to how he did in X-Men First Class. Okay. Uh, not an actual big role or anything like that. Um, it seems to me that it would have been pretty difficult to do Wolverine in this, though, because of the rights issues, you know? That well, was 100%. Yeah. Like at that point, you know, the X-Men were owned by Fox. Yeah. And Sony was owned, uh, Sony owned Spider-Man. And those two studios paid a lot of money to get the rights to those characters. And the idea of sharing characters was not prevalent yet. No. Um, so yeah, that would have been tough. That would have been tough to, to pull off. Yeah. Um, the Green Goblin's costume was originally designed to be more bulky and armored. But when Willem Dafoe 
having decided to do his own stunts, rejected in favor of a more you know streamlined and athletic costume. The final outfit was composed of 580 pieces and took Defoe half an hour to put on. Is that true? Yeah, I think that that's true. Uh, that costume went through a lot of different designs, and they even had a rubber mask, which the costume designer, his name is uh, James Atchison, preferred. Um, but by the time that he came onto the production, they had outsourced the mask and costume to another department that was not that was not Sony's costume department. It was like an outside company. Hmm. And they're the ones that came back with the multi-piece armored suit um, and the bulky helmet, which Atchison hated. He <laughs> hates the Green Goblin face. Um, and the scene that he talks about going to see uh, when he went to go see the movie uh, in a theater with a crowd that he like hid down in his seat because he was so embarrassed by it was the um, conversation between Green Goblin and Spider-Man on the rooftop after he brings him up there from, you know, taking him from the Daily Bugle because he says they there was no way for him to talk, you know, without it being realistic. So when the slot opens and you see Norman's eyes and his mouth move, Atchison was just like, this looks like Mystery Science Theater 3000. <laughs> it should not be in a, a Spider-Man movie that costs the amount that it takes. And he goes, if we had more time, and if people listened to me, we would have had a more uh, comic accurate rubber mask uh, that, that would have looked better on the goblin. So but but instead, we ended up with the with the armor that we got. And it's weird that they decided to go with the armor when you have an actor like Willem Dafoe who can contort his face the way that he does. It was such a strange choice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Why would you hide that face? Yeah. Which I think is probably a big part of the reason why. John Watts smashes the mask pretty mm -hmm. early on <laughs> just as Defoe, you know, do it himself. I kind of had a silent cheer to myself in the theater when he did that. I was like, yes. <laughs> uh, when Sam Raimi first offered to cast Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man, the studio was initially very reluctant. Mm -hmm. That was until they saw Maguire's test and they saw that the actor had clearly bulked up for the role. Um, I've seen the that test footage. It's again on YouTube, mm -hmm. uh, and it outside of Spider Man, it looks kind of weird. But if you think about it as it being Spider Man, you're like, okay, yeah, I, this this. If I were a studio and I was hesitant, this would push me over the edge, for sure. And you got to remember that before this um, casting, Tobey Maguire was best known for uh, the Cider House Rules mm -hmm. and uh, Wonder Boys, which are you know largely independent dramas or. Uh, Mid-budget films. Uh, yes, and Pleasant, exactly, Pleasantville. Um, so when you suggested him as sort of like a, as the, it was stated in the trades from an anonymous source that no one views him as an ass-kicking superhero, was the quote. Um, but what you forget is Spider-Man's a teenager. Yeah. You know, he's not supposed to be uh, Superman, essentially. So you do cast the bookworm, you know, and Laura Ziskin, uh, who was the producer at the time, knew that Toby could sell the Peter Parker of it all. And and I think she pushed really hard uh, with Sam to and, and Sam wanted Toby in the first place anyway. But the, the two of them recognized that in order for this movie to work, for people to care about who Spider-Man is, they had to care who Peter Parker was. And they knew Toby could do that. And he's the perfect casting choice. You know, when you look at characters like Superman or Batman 
I think there are actors that a lot of people prefer, you know, obviously. Mm-hmm. But to me, and speaking just from my experience, I love all three actors mm-hmm. that have played Spider-Man, whether it's Tobey Maguire, whether it's Andrew Garfield, whether it's it's uh, Tom Holland, all of them have done such a phenomenal job. It's hard to imagine another actor during this time uh, playing Spider-Man. It's very difficult. And this is what I love so much about No Way Home, because if No Way Home just posits that there are slight variations of Spider-Man existing in in multiverses that are running at the exact same time then it negates the the conversation of who's the best interpretation of spider-man well Mm -hmm. they're all great Mm -hmm. and they're all great in the interpretations for their worlds that they need to be yep like i love the fact that now i can go watch the raimi toby Maguire movies and view them as oh this is just a subset this is the spider-man for this world Mm -hmm. And it's okay that Andrew now has his subset and the things that are going on in his world and the things that he would encounter and how they're going to shape him to become a different Spider-Man, which, you know, once they meet up with Tom, they bring all of those collective experiences to their interpretations of Peter Parker and they work against each other. I love how the first time they all try to go out and fight the villains, they can't figure out how to work together. It was was such a um, smart thing to have to stage first before they can figure out how to work as a team mm-hmm. like that was a great aspect when both toby and, and andrew were like i've never worked on a team before you know but here you have a version of spider-man who was in an mcu and had the avengers and did figure out how to work on a team and he was able to say no okay let's do this trust your tingle you know we'll take him off the board one at a time and then they go and then they figured it out and it was brilliant i, I just love that i love that and it's uh Again, one of the most creative things that No Way Home pulled off. Well, you followed that up with one of the greatest web swinging scenes uh, probably ever. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's yeah. Fantastic. Um, it is. It's great. Speaking of Tobey Maguire, and I'm sure Christian Bale somewhere is shouting, where was this for me? Uh, <laughs> Tobey Maguire had to have his Spider-Man outfit slightly remodeled as the original design had not been made or for any allowances for when the actor needed to go to the bathroom. So mm-hmm. a vent was added to enable him to relieve himself without having to remove the entire costume. And again, somewhere Christian Bale is punching the air. Yeah. And there's truth to that. I mean, I think the costume went through a number of different altercations, uh, alterations. One of the things that I found most interesting in researching the work that went into the costume for Spider-Man is just how, Early in the process, the costume department had to begin um, if they were going to stay on deadline, because the amount of work that goes into crafting those costumes, because you need one for your original cast member, but then you need one for roughly 10 to 15 stuntmen who are going to be wearing the exact same costume and the facial mold uh, for the mask has to match your leading actor specifically. specifically so that you don't know you're watching a different Spider-Man in a particular uh, fight sequence. So they needed, and this was before Toby had been cast. uh, The costume department is going to Sam Raimi and saying, who are you going to pick? Because we need to know their body shape and we need to know their build. And so (laughs) Jim Atchison told me a story where he brought in uh, 20 different men uh, in nothing but Speedos and (laughs) pulled Sam Raimi in and said, 
point at the body that you're going to have. And <laughs> He said, Ramey couldn't have been more embarrassed um, because, you know, Ramey in his suit and tie and he just, he comes across he had, as such like a sweet kind of like quiet guy. Right. Exactly. So I imagine him seeing that probably must've shocked him. Yes. But Jim was like, we're racing the clock here. I have to design these suits. You know, you haven't even cast your Spider-Man yet. What, what is he going to look like? And so apparently Ramey pointed at a guy who was like a bodybuilder, you know, had a <clears throat> had a real uh, built structure to him. And Atchison's like, all right, we're going to go with that then. And then Atchison goes, two weeks later, he cast Tobey Maguire, who doesn't have that build at all. <laughs> and we had to go back to square one and make a costume that fit him. So I love, I love all the behind the scenes stories about the creative process and how those movies came together like that. There's another really fun one from Spider-Man 2 um, about, the train sequence, which I think most fans would argue is probably the, the most exciting uh, action set piece in Raimi's films, if not all the Spider-Man films. Yes. But, but the way that John Dykstra, uh, the cinematographer, had to uh, shoot that was they had two weeks in Chicago long before uh, the movie had even started. The script, the script wasn't even finished, but they had an idea for a, a train fight sequence. So he had access to um, three cars, three Chicago train cars on the L um, for two weeks straight. And they took all the windows out of it and they just rode around the track for like two weeks and shot as many angles as they could. Um, so that Ramey later would have the ability to choreograph his fight sequence um, with visual effects and add the characters to this, you know, uh, blueprint you know of, of a moving train that dykstra shot two weeks before they even started production production and i love how you know they having the foresight to go shoot all that footage and then build it into one of the most memorable action set pieces it's, uh, it's not how movies should get made but that's how that one got made it's crazy to me hearing stories like that that movies are even good yeah exactly you know? <laughs> yeah exactly it, it, yeah. it's just mo each movie whether, you know, that's why it, it sucks when a movie's bad, I think, because there's so much effort put into even the bad ones, you yep. know? So true. Um, but, you know, going back to Spider-Man's suit, uh, he was, Tobey Maguire was, was fitted for the skin-tight outfit being covered with layers of substance to create the suit shape, and it was mm -hmm. designed as a single piece except for the mask and the webbing, uh, accented the costume or the webbing that accented the costume was done by a computer. Yes. Although it was 3d printed uh, oh, and then nice. applied strand by strand to that wow. computer, uh, to, to the, because the Raimi suit, if you remember, has that almost raised pattern. Mm -hmm. um, and they had to do that for every version of the suit that they created. Um, and so that's a big reason why when you got to Andrew's suits, uh, the costume design department learned the, from that mistake <laughs> and they went back to a very simple uh, sort of, you know, swimsuit almost texture uh, that didn't require the amount of because all of those individual web strands had to be applied by hand. That is. Oh, my God. Could you imagine how painstaking that would that would be? Uh, that's why movies take a very long time to put together. Ugh. Yes. Um, David Fincher was asked to direct this film and his vision would have told the origin story in the opening credits 
that would have been based on the night that Gwen Stacy died. Could you imagine a David Fincher Spider-Man film? No, uh, I can't, honestly. And I'd like to believe that almost any director could take on any type of material. But knowing what we know about Fincher and everything that he's made from that point, he's so just interested in police procedurals, you know, whether it be Seven, uh, whether it be Zodiac, um, his work on Mindhunter on Mm -hmm. Netflix, like he's into the dark and gritty uh, and he's into the. um, It's just not an element that fits Spider-Man, you know, maybe maybe I'd even push him over to Batman, but like. I know that there was a, a Batman treatment for a year one story that Darren Aronofsky wanted to do. And I think that that would have been a good fit for the material. Um, Fincher, I, I get it. He was an, he was an exciting name at that time. I think he had seven and fight club. If, if yes. I fight correctly. club came out in 99, I think. Yeah. 99. Okay. And so he would have been coming 95. off of that. And it would have made sense then why the studio would have been very interested in him. But I think that would have been a terrible marriage. Yeah, again, he's more of like, again, I could see him doing Batman. You mentioned a Batman, but I for sure I can't really see him really vibing with Spider-Man with what he's interested in. That just doesn't feel very Fincher. And also outside of his uh, remake of the girl with the dragon tattoo, like Fincher likes to do original material. Mm -hmm. So I don't see him getting into an IP, which, you know, for for all of the the uh, issues that come with the Spider-Man movie or any superhero movie, the reality is that there are a lot of voices at the top who are giving their creative input because there's a lot at stake, mm-hmm. you know, from not just the movie standpoint, but like the, um, the the toy aspect of it, you know, the the marketing partnerships like you think David Fincher wants to get approached by uh, McDonald's. Heck for no. a spider-man tie-in <laughs> you know no he wants to go do the social network and yeah. that's where he belongs you know that's where david fincher thrives so i don't want him to pigeon himself uh, pigeonhole himself into a uh, a blockbuster there are other filmmakers who can do it and do it very well who i think are more comfortable in it than he ever would be yeah and it's so crazy to think that one of the films that he started on was return of the jedi uh, yes exactly and I so, think he learned his lesson from that. Well, honestly, he learned his lesson from Aliens 3. Alien, yeah. Alien yeah, 3. So. Uh, when James Cameron was developing a Spider-Man film in the early 1990s, Charlie Sheen was actively campaigning for the role. Apparently, due Cameron's disinterest after Titanic, though, Cameron said his only choice was Leonardo DiCaprio before he passed on to other projects. And the thing that I remember the most about this fact in particular was that I was under the impression from the time that I was like four or five that we were eventually going to get a Spider-Man movie that was going to be directed by James Cameron and starring Leonardo DiCaprio. And I thought that until I saw like one of the earlier trailers for for Spider-Man while I was seeing a movie when I was younger. So that's the only like fun fact that we've gone over gone over that has just boggled my mind that we were going to get a James Cameron Spider-Man movie if that is indeed true. Oh, Cameron loves Spider-Man. He is a he is an enormous Spider-Man fan uh and is to this day. He put a book out just this past year um which whose the name escapes me. Gosh, I should look it up. Um which is basically a collection of all of his 
sketches and storyboards from his films over the course of his career. And it's heavy into aliens and it's heavy into avatar um, and some terminator. Um, but at the end of it, he talks about uh, the project. He calls it the one that got away and it was his Spider-Man treatment. And he um, was really into the project. So here's how he got, he got approached by Lauren Shula Donner, uh, who was a producer on uh, the X-Men at that time. And this is before the, the project went to Brian Singer and um, Laura Ziskin and Avi Arad and um, Chris Claremont, who was writing a, a very popular string of X-Men comics at that time, went in to pitch um, Cameron on potentially doing Cameron was going to write and produce the X-Men movie and his wife, uh, Catherine Bigelow, would have directed it uh, at the time. Um, and. Uh, over the course of that interest, uh, over the course of that meeting, Stan Lee, who was also there, mentioned to Cameron, oh, I hear you also like Spider-Man. And that like instantly Cameron's attention went away from the X-Men uh, and right onto Spider-Man. And he said, oh, my God, I love Spider-Man. What are your plans with him? What's the deal? So he wrote a treatment, which you can get. I've got it on a in a book printed over here. You can find it online and you can read his, it's like a 58-page treatment. It's not a full-on script, but it's a description of what he would have done with the character. Um, and it's a little darker. Um, it leans very heavily into the idea of a, uh, a teenager wrestling with body changes um, and the powers that are being granted to him. Uh and it's kind of adult. Like there's a, there's a sex scene between Peter and Mary Jane on the top of the bridge. Um, it's very, you know, it, it goes a little bit. Yeah. It goes to <laughs> some strange places. Um, but he would have at some point introduced uh, the black symbiote, uh, according to his artwork, he wanted that to be part of it. Um, and yeah, he wanted DiCaprio to do it. So this was, this was developed in between uh, Terminator and Terminator two. And in order to for him to get uh carol co the company to invest in terminator 2 he said i will do terminator 2 for you guys if you buy the rights to spider-man because after i finish terminator 2 i want to go do that and they went through a bunch of things to negotiate the rights for for spider-man they secured them um and he started to develop his treatment but spider-man at that time was a difficult deal because like MGM had the theatrical rights to it. Sony had the home video rights to it. Uh, and one other company had the international rights to it. And so nobody could, could uh, hold all three. And so imagine if you made a Spider-Man movie, but then when it came out on DVD, you didn't get the revenue from it, right? Like no studio really wants to do that, especially no. in the nineties when DVDs were starting to become the boom sort of thing. So that prevented Cameron from diving fully into it. And then he got caught up in Titanic uh, and he just brought DiCaprio with him. But his Peter Parker was always going to be Leonardo DiCaprio. You know, I would love to see that movie because Cam James Cameron is on my Mount Rushmore of directors. I don't think right. he's ever directed a bad movie. Um, I, I love James Cameron. So seeing him kind of dabble a little bit in the, the superhero genre would have been really cool, especially with an actor like Leonardo DiCaprio as Spider-Man. I, I know. I don't know yeah. how I feel about a sex scene in a Spider-Man movie because Spider-Man is, I don't associate him with that, you know? Sure, sure. So that would have been a little interesting, but everything else that I, I've heard about it, like 
correct me if I'm wrong on this, but was Arnold Schwarzenegger supposed to play Doc Ock or is that just that, some rumor? No, that, well, that was rumored. Um, I'm not sure they ever got to the point of full on casting, mm-hmm. but he would have he would have liked uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger to play Dr. Octopus. And then uh, Electro would have been his other villain. He had he had two villains and Electro would have been the primary one. Cameron also uh, gets credit in his treatment for coming up with the um, the Tobey Maguire uh, web spinners mm-hmm. and the fact that they're not mechanical uh, and that they are organic. They're an organic reaction to the spider bite. That would be, um, he, he labeled them as, he called them like spinnerets. They were like these tiny little things that would come out of the wrist uh, and shoot uh, webbing organically. So all of these jokes from No Way Home about like you shoot, you know, you make webbing in your body kind of thing. <laughs> That all traces back to Cameron was the first one who came up with that idea. And Sam Raimi just liked it and kept it. Honestly, I know this might be unpopular. I prefer the organic web. over. Do you the- really? I, I disagree. Do. I disagree. I, I think Peter has to build his web shooters. Let's see. The reason I, I, I don't like the web shooters as much is because it's a little easy story trick where you can write in, oh, his web is out of fluid. So he has to overcome this as opposed to having it naturally which is where it kind of bottles you into where you have to come up with another thing for him to overcome sure. uh, i still i still like the web shooters but I, I just like the natural fluid it's so cool and it's funny how it gets brought up in no way home it is <laughs> is that yeah, the only is. place it comes out of <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah. that idea is cameron's he gets that's, credit for that that's awesome um I had one more fun fact here, but we kind of already covered it with the Green Goblin uh, helmet design. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go ahead and uh, we're going to take a sponsorship break. So before we get to our award section, we're going to take a quick break so you can hear an ad from our sponsor. And we are back. Thank you so much to our sponsors over here at Ben Davis Movie Podcast. Really appreciate it. We're going to move on to our award section and we're going to start off with favorite scenes and moments. Uh, I have one where I have 10 listed here. We're going to start off with the opening credits. So I don't know about you, but I really miss opening credits like this. You know, the the cold open, which is what Marvel does. It's great. Uh, I sometimes enjoy this thing that's really big now and popular, which is showing the ending of a movie and then flash forward. Um, Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. But there's just something about an opening credit scene with a score like this by Danny Elfman that really it sets the tone of the movie. And I will also add, I love the the quick shots of Spider-Man coming up through the webs and getting the webs on him. It's it's really cool. But my, my biggest takeaway is right after the credits are over, you get this wonderful voiceover mm-hmm. by Tobey Maguire that makes it again feel like a fairy tale and it really gets at the heart of what would become this trilogy which is his relationship with mj mm-hmm. i really love this opening credits I, i'm not going to fault the opening credits i'm going to say that in the 20 years since they have happened i've become impatient i've become impatient <laughs> at the start of a movie and if i'm watching spider-man at home i skip the i skip them um i do like the ones from spider-man 2 a little bit more because of the way that they use the artwork Mm-hmm. uh is like alex ross are those alex ross paintings yes. that are sort of depicting what happened in one those are beautiful so. and so it gives me something to look at <laughs> <laughs> but you're right the elfman score is fantastic um but now if if an opening credit scene goes too long i feel myself getting antsy and i feel myself thinking like let's get to the movie but it's very much a product of of 2002 and and fits very well with this movie 
Yeah. Peter versus Flash. So one, I have a question, John. Is it true that someone tried to play Joe Manganiello to hit, like to hit him to hit Toby? Oh, I don't know. I've, I've not heard that one before. That is something I've heard several times before. Okay. But I don't know the truth of that. I mean, um, I, these productions are so choreographed and, you know, safety of the actor that I'd be stunned that an extra, you know, would 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 risk that, would jeopardize that. So, yeah, that doesn't sound right, but no, who's to say? Um, but I, I think the reason I like this scene so much is the fact that it plays into the whole fantasy of, of those who wish they could beat up their bullies. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, it also shows the come down from that. And it demonstrates that feeling of emptiness one might feel after beating up a bully. Sure, you're cool for a second or you might feel cool for a second, but you haven't really changed anything. That guy is still a bully or girl is still a bully and you've given up the moral high ground. You know, it's perfectly Spider-Man how this sequence ends. It doesn't end with everybody cheering. It ends with right. him looking around and everyone walking away and him being like, oh, God, what did I just do? Right. Um, and in addition, it's a great way for us at, at the early stage to visualize his powers by slowing him down, you know, and there's that amazing moment where Manganello's hand is, is extended and Toby just sort of stops and he's like looking at it and you're like, oh, my God. But then it quickly speeds up again. Right. And it's mm -hmm. Raimi putting you in the, the point of view of the hero. And then thinking like, oh, this is really cool. He's super gifted now at this point. <laughs> uh, there's one aspect where Andrew Garfield gets a chance uh, in his first one when he first wakes up with his powers and he goes to like turn on his sink and it just rips off in his hand. Yeah. <laughs> and those are cool elements where you're like, oh, God, you forget just how strong, you know, he would be. And those little real life elements lend to that. Um, but then there's like the elements of with Andrew with a bully are not handled as well as they are in the first Raimi one because it's the basketball game and it's like, it's, it feels forced. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I thought Raimi kind of nailed it and it almost made it more difficult for everybody following him uh, to, to do something better than that, because that was a really classic way of having a, an eighties ish bully, you know, an over the top sort of meathead. Uh, and then Peter being able to take him down in that way. Yeah. What are your thoughts on Peter's first, you know, wall crawl and jump and web swing? Um, I I love them. I think that they have that sort of youthful exuberance. Mm -hmm. uh, the first crawl is fantastic. And I'll tell you something fun about the first crawl. Um, they were trying to debate how much they could do physically um, versus needing to do visual effects to show a, a body crawling. And apparently they, the uh, visual effects team shot it both ways where they just, they laid a wall down on the floor. They had Toby crawl across it, you know, positioned it to make it look like he was going up. And then they did a visual effects version as well too. And they showed both of them in a boardroom to the Sony executives and the executives couldn't tell the difference between which was which. And that's when they knew like, okay, we're going to be able to do a lot of this stuff in visual effects, but, but Toby sells it, you know, like, oh, yeah. His enthusiasm for those is is terrific. It's really, really great. Him looking back and just shouting, woo! It's, yeah. I mean, we've all seen that meme. And then, of course, I love the Shazam reference. <laughs> yes. Shazam, go web, go! <laughs> and, and again, that's funny because it's the organic web shooter, right? Yep. Like, if he's able to do it mechanically, that doesn't 
that doesn't work. So it's not a thing, but right. being that he does it naturally, you have to figure out, well, how the hell do I do this? Right, uh, right, right, <laughs> right. There was a great TikTok that somebody sent to me recently of a, a little boy sitting at a table and his dad moves and knocks a, a, a pepper shaker off the table. Uh-huh. But before the dad even knocks it off, the kid puts his hand down and catches it. And then he's like, he kind of looks at himself like, how did I know how to do that? Like, did I have a spider sense? And then he makes the the thing with his fingers. <laughs> so to say, like, can I shoot web now? <laughs> it's so innocent. I loved everything about it. It's so cute. I think I've seen that exact same TikTok. It's it's adorable. Uh, ben tries to talk to Peter. Mm. So how do you how do you feel about this sequence and how it's handled? Is this outside the library when they get in the fight? Yes, in the vehicle. Um, again, I hate to keep comparing it to the other franchises, but it's impossible not to. Yeah. I thought that uh, Martin Sheen did a better job of establishing a relationship with Andrew's Peter uh, than than Cliff Robertson did, which is but but I think by design, uh, Cliff Robertson, and Rosemary Harris were way more comic accurate uh, Uncle Ben and Aunt May. Right. And that the the years separating them were so were so drastic. Right. Yeah. That um, they were parental guardians. They weren't his friend kind of thing. I think Martin Sheen sometimes felt like he was trying to befriend Peter. Um, so, you know, but you have to get to a point where they're going to disagree. Um, and it feels forced. You know, it's not the most natural disagreement uh, up until that point. But I get why it exists. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to have Peter be upset with Uncle Ben for a reason uh, so that his his death makes sense later and for Peter to feel that guilt. So... I'm okay with it. I'm okay with how it plays out. The movie has to deal with a lot of material. It does. Uh, in order to get through. And it keeps it moving along. And I think hits the emotional beats that it kind of has to. Um, but I wouldn't rank it as one of my favorite scenes now. So I like it a lot. And I think the reason I like it a lot is because I find it so heartbreaking. Because it's Cliff Robertson trying to relate as Uncle Ben to Peter. Mm. Um and when I was a kid, I used to skip this scene every time because it made me like really dislike Peter, mm-hmm. you know, but I think the reason I like it so much now is because of its thematic resonance of he hits that high point in his head of being cocky. I have all these powers and everything like like that, but it's mm-hmm. right before the fall yep. when that the worst dose of reality hits you. But it also you have that iconic line of with great power comes great responsibility. Yes. And again, with great power is the name of your book that's coming out pretty soon. <laughs> yes, it is. There's no way that I couldn't not call it that. Like that was just. You have it's, to. It's there. You have to. It's the perfect title. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I appreciate that. Peter's bad decision slash death of Uncle Ben. I, I love the message of this entire sequence. Uh, you, you you know, if you if you take the easy way out and be petty and just you seek vengeance because someone has wronged you usually those choices come back to bite you. And unfortunately for Peter, because of his actions of letting that guy go, uncle Ben gets gunned down. Right. Um, It's just, it's heartbreaking. Um, And the way Cliff Robertson says, Peter, it feels like a punch to the gut. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's also, it it's taken right out of the book, you know, for him to, for the criminal to run past Peter in the hallway and the guy to say, why didn't you stop him? 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, he said, I, I don't see how that was my problem, you know, or whatever, however the line is phrased, you know, calling back to what the guy just said to him, essentially. Uh, it, it's so in that moment, it's so out of character for Peter, right? Because he's he's been nothing but but generous with everybody around him to a fault almost, you know. And so for him to finally do something for himself and to feel a bit of uh, bravado and have it be the one time that it truly snake bites him is quintessential Spider-Man. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the one time that he tries to do something for himself, uh, it's going to amplify and come back at him bad, you know, tenfold. So uh, the tone of all of that and how it plays out, the Raimi's faithful, you know, interpretation of, of the, of the uh, amazing fantasy story and how it plays out. All, all of it just hits the nail on the head. Yeah. The parade. So we've, we've talked about this a little bit with the CGI and it not aging as well, but sure. there's just so much about this sequence that it's just fun. You know, you got Willem Dafoe being over the top at, in the most perfect way. I mean that in the most complimentary of ways um, for the tone. It's just perfect. And if, it's just, it's great Spider-Man action. You get him ripping open the, the jacket or the suit and you see this yeah. the spider-man symbol it's very yeah. much like christopher reeves spider or superman you know of course, of course but i think my favorite part is the awe and wonder in mj's eyes when she's holding on to him and he's swinging her to safety okay nice good call love that yeah i mean i'm with you in that in that the action is probably as good as it was going to be mm-hmm. uh for 2002 i give this sequence a lot of credit for being set in broad daylight Yes. There were not a lot of uh, comic book action hero sequences set in daylight uh, up to this point. No. They would be, you know, hidden in shadow for Batman. Superman had a few, but even most of Superman's big fights would take place in the evening in Metropolis. And this was a, a bright, sunny, you know, Times Square day. Uh, it's iconic. It's iconic in the in the in the fact that it's spider-man i think i think the green goblin for for all of the rogues gallery that spider-man has green goblin is his seminal villain like that's his joker to the batman that's his lex luthor to to superman and so to see them meeting for the first time on screen in any fashion is going to be iconic um i i you know i I nitpick the fight choreography because of goblin's suit you know nowadays you would see a fight where the you know it'd be far more uh seamless and flow better um but for for what we got in 2002 you know that's it is what it is how about when all the executives turn into skeletons (laughs) when the bomb goes off i have so many questions about that and we'll get to it later (laughs) goodness Uh, that's funny that's that's raimi though you know that that, that's raimi wanting that evil dead raimi yep exactly uh Norman talks to Goblin. So I'm gonna let you take this one. Like it's just oh my god, I can't his face, his posture, his mannerisms, it's all nothing sort of masterful. It really is. Uh and this is why you get Defoe. And this is why Defoe is is back in two and three, you know, because those scenes work as well as they do. Mm-hmm. Um and and it's a great way for the audience to be brought in on his thought process. Uh, it's a smart way to do it, you know, to give him an inner monologue, but to allow him to play it himself, which I, you, you didn't see a lot of that in any other villains up to that point. Um, and for someone who is truly insane, you know, the way that that Norman goes with his quest for power, uh, it's an outstanding way to play it. 
And and again, Defoe is as good as he is. And I, I even think he just got better in No Way Home. Um, yeah. It's an incredibly smart uh, choice by Raimi that you realize how hard it becomes when James Franco has to try to do it <laughs> opposite, <laughs> opposite uh, Willem Dafoe in the later, in the later movies. It doesn't work as well in my opinion. It doesn't. It, no, no. Uh, the upside down kiss. We don't have to talk about this as much, but it's just, it's, it's so iconic, you know? And yeah, it's a little pr- impractical, but it's just, it's so damn romantic and it certainly ranks in the top five kisses in movies for me, I would think. Oh, I think so. Yeah, too. Uh, but even prior to it, uh, the fight against those guys is pretty great. Like, it's a good use of Spider-Man powers, mm-hmm. you know, for him to sort of web them, pull them across an, an alleyway. Uh, her lines of dialogue are pretty funny because she's clearly gotten very comfortable with him being around. I believe she says something along the lines of, I think I have a secret admirer or a superhero stalker, superhero stalker. Is that what she calls him? And it's so. playful, you know, it's playful. Like she's not, she's not threatened by him anymore. She's almost intrigued by the fact that he's always around. Um, I, I always found it a little bit funny that like, he sounds like Peter. Shouldn't she know? <laughs> Shouldn't you know? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm okay with it. That's fine. Um, and like you said, yeah, the way that they stage it is so it, it's just so iconic. So, yeah. Uh, burning building confrontation with, with the green goblin. Like I love the fake out with the old lady blanket or whatever he has on him. It's just, it's hilarious. Even yeah, yeah. now, uh, I think my favorite sh- shot from any of the Spider-Man movies is in this, and it's with him dodging the blades. Okay, yeah, it's it's so sick, and I love that these fights between them, while they're not they're not as many, they feel very practical and hard hitting. You know, they don't feel very fake; they, they feel kind of real. Hundred percent. And one of the reasons that I was griping about Spider-Man the first time it came out is because I wanted more of them. I wanted a lot more Spider-Man action, you know, and it's if you go through, I'd love to know what the minute count is <laughs> that Spider-Man is actually on screen uh, in his move in his first movie, because I don't think it's a lot. No. Um, but one of the things I really love about the burning building confrontation is that it even has a uh, plot development in it because he gets cut and it's almost when and it's only when Norman sees the drop of blood, you know, in the apartment later that he makes the connection. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, this is this is Peter. I just faced him kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. So for Raimi to even include that as it's probably David Kep as well too, uh screenwriter in that aspect is great. Like that just goes to, sh- to show filmmakers and storytellers who are paying attention to details and knowing that we're going to put this in the middle of a, of a confrontation, a physical confrontation that is kind of required in a comic book movie, but it's going to have a point that's going to be relevant later uh, for these two to figure out their identities so that you're not playing the back and forth of, uh, who is who and whose secret identity is what and when is that going to get revealed? It's a clever way to reveal it. Absolutely. Plays into the story. It's not just there for their sake. Yep. Um, the last one I have here is the ending battle. So you mentioned earlier, you have a nitpick about this sequence and I've been just sitting here stewing on it. So I want to know what, what is it about this sequence that you. It's not the battle. Okay, not um, the battle. It is the fact that they put Mary Jane Watson uh, into the Gwen Stacy story. Like when you put Mary Jane Watson on top of a bridge 
and she gets knocked off by the goblin. Um, that's Gwen Stacy's story, right? Like to me as a, as a Spider-Man purist, if you're going to put one of his love interests on the top of a bridge and she's going to get knocked off by the green goblin, it's not Mary Jane. So that bothered me the moment that that sequence started, right? I was like, Oh, you can't, this is a, this is a big change. What are you doing? Kind of thing. So I'm going back to the first time I ever watched it. Cause I didn't know how it was going to play out. I was like, all right, you're putting Mary Jane on the bridge um, and she's going to get knocked off by Goblin. Are you going to kill her off? And um, then they didn't. He was able to rescue her. Uh, so then I thought, like, well, why did you put her on the bridge in the first place? Like, you you kind of wanted your cake and eat it, too. You almost did a little bit of the of the Mary Jane or the, you did a little bit of the night when Stacy died, but you didn't commit to it because you let her live kind of thing. Then you get. Mary Jane, you know, as the driving interest in, in Spider-Man two, and then you bring Gwen Stacy in three and she's irrelevant. You know, this like, she's an important character and you waste her completely in the franchise. So it always bugged me because in the back of my mind, I, I figured that the, the right way to have done this. Uh, and again, it's, you know, a Monday morning, Monday morning quarterbacking, quarterbacking. This yeah. entire <laughs> franchise, but what they should have done is make Gwen the initial love interest in the first movie do the bridge scene and legitimately have um, Norman succeed in killing her at the end of the first movie. So you start the second movie where Peter's in incredibly depressed because he couldn't save Gwen um, and he doesn't want his powers. He curses the fact that he has these powers, which then gets you the ability to do the Spider-Man no more, you know, with a legitimate reason for him wanting to get rid of them. Um, but he meets Mary Jane over the course of two, and then they become a, a love interest. And then you transition into three, which whatever three could have been uh, that Raimi officially would have gotten. So I just thought that the way that they narratively structured that out had some issues and they're issues that prevented me from fully saying like, that's the seminal interpretation uh, of, of Spider-Man. Now, because you know, me as a as a huge comic book person and you as well, we know that Gwen Stacy is Peter Parker's first love. Right. Mary Jane came along later, and I would argue to general audiences, she is the the popular, the most popular of the two. Yeah. But I also think that Gwen Stacy is the better of the two. I, I still love both characters. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I think I prefer Gwen Stacy, which is kind of funny because if you keep going with comics for decades, you know, Peter and Mary Jane have the much longer relationship where they're mm -hmm. married, you know, on again, off again, and <laughs> still a couple now to this point. And Gwen is a, an afterthought kind of thing, still in the back of his mind sort of thing. But like, you know, she was first, as you say. Yeah. And yeah, I, I can see where that would rub you the wrong way. Uh, I think for me, the reason I, I like it is because it puts Peter in that impossible situation where it's either you have what you want or you do what is right. Right. And he has to figure out a way to do both. And I think putting him in that situation is why I resonated with this sequence because it, it makes him the blue collar working class hero that we all love. Yep. For sure. Even though it does take away, like you said, from the Gwen Stacy arc of it, um, which they completely forget that she's even a character until the third one. And even then they forget that she's a character. 
Ugh, the scene, one of the worst scenes in the Raimi franchise is when Gwen is dangling from the top of a skyscraper, you know, going to die. And Topher Grace shows up to take pictures. And then he says, oh, by the way, uh, I'm dating your daughter. Like, yeah. that, is, that is not the time. That is not the appropriate time to bring that up, man. Bring no. that up later. Right, exactly. <laughs> and they're all just standing there like, I hope she's going to be okay. Oh, by the way, I'm dating your daughter. Yeah, it's, like, just, stop. Stop. Yeah. Terrible. Terrible. But I think my favorite part of this whole battle is the actual ending battle at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spider-Man gets his ass kicked like, oh, yeah. badly. And what's yep. funny is there was an action figure of this titled Battle Ravage Spider-Man that I had oh. as a kid. Nice. I really wish I still had it. Um, but I don't know if they would make that action figure today. But um, <laughs> I love the choice of having him not uh, kill the villain. Okay. The villain kills himself. Although I still wish he would have uh, he would have lived. Yeah, it would have been good for him to live. I, it's it's interesting because they maintained the comic accuracy of the Goblin's death, you know, mm-hmm. to that. But yet I thought made such creative liberties uh, prior to to get to that point. So I was I was always confused as to why Raimi uh, decided to completely lift from the comics in some aspects and then make make bold changes in the other. Now, David Kep in the in my book that's coming out told me that he teased the bridge in one because had he been able to write all three of the Raimi movies, he would have done the Gwen Stacy saga um, in three. And in his mind, it would have paid off the tease of the bridge sequence in one. Like that one would have been set there as like a, Hey, this could happen one day. And then in three, it would have been, this is when it actually happens sort of deal but he never got a chance to like, he turned in a script for a Spider-Man two that Raimi decided to go in a different direction with, and then kept never came back on the franchise. Hmm. Yeah. I could see it playing out that way, but oh, well, uh, I will say I have one more honorable mention. And as Peter, not getting the girl at the end, I think that that was just a very bold choice. Oh yeah, definitely. But that's that's in character, you know, very you much have to go. You have to go that direction. Yeah, very much so. Uh, out of all these sequences, unless, of course, you have more to add or one that's not even on here. What is your what's your favorite sequence in this movie? Uh, from this from this list. I'm going to go with the burning building confrontation with the Green Goblin. I think that's one that I go back to and rewatch uh, often. Yeah. Uh, I, I love the slow motion dodging uh, between the the goblin razors and and then I'll throw in as a as a MVP is anything with uh, with J. John Jameson. <laughs> nice anything spot Christmas Jonah. meat. <laughs> That's all I can give you. I mean, Simmons is is so perfectly cast that anything with Jonah is is pure gold. Yeah, he, he is an amazing actor and I'm so happy he's back as J. Jonah. Yeah, uh, I'm going to uh, agree with you on favorite uh, scene. It's it's oh. that built, burning building confrontation with my honorable mention being the the upside down kiss. OK, it's I can see that. Uh, moving on to worst scenes and moments I only have four listed here. They're pretty quick. Um, mm-hmm. When Norman's assistant tries to give 
Norman CPR. I forget the character's name, but it's just, it looks like the weakest form of CPR I've ever seen. <laughs> the technique is just so awful. It's like 20% body, 80% triceps, you know, and right. shoulders. Yeah, need some brushing up on those skills, man. That's funny. <laughs> it's just very like, specific. That's very specific. Well, every time I see it, it just bugs me. <laughs> like, as someone who uh, used to be a personal trainer, it's like, oh, come on, man. Put your body into it. <laughs> uh, That's funny. The Quest Aerospace Testing new suit. Uh, okay. It just comes across as, as goofy in its execution and the lead up to it. Uh, mm-hmm. They haven't, or there's no lead up to it, rather. Like, they have this interaction at the beginning of the film, but it just comes across, you know, the, this sequence comes across as weird for the pacing. But again, my main issue is that it just comes across as goofy and not at all threatening or scary. Yeah, I can see that. Um, and it almost that was that was around the time when all of these comic book movies needed some form of military uh, mm-hmm. villain. Uh, and so they had to figure out like because I, I think at one point you and I were having a conversation uh, through text messages back and forth or direct messages about why would the military even want to invest in a green goblin type suit <laughs> forced because it just feels like at that time, one of the cliches was, you know, a sinister government agency that is investing in or putting money into the villain. So yeah, I could see that being clumsy, very clumsy. Uh, Norman's boardroom breakdown. It's a big red flag, you know, huge outburst and then goes, am I? And this question mark, you know, following like, am I? And then he makes this weird face, you know, it's, it's just, again hokey and the guy should be the number one suspect for all of this stuff going on and no one's raising any questions about it right 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 yeah and And i'll throw another norman one on you uh the the when he busts through the wall and makes her finish praying (laughs) finish it (laughs) like that's how sinister he is he's gonna make her finish her prayer Before I take you, I'm going to make you finish your prayers. Right, right, right. It's just that entire sequence comes across as Batman 89 to me. I can see that for sure. Yeah. Uh, And the last one I have is a transition from after Norman kind of comforts Harry and tells him he's proud of him. You get that weird flash of the Green Goblin mask. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just just cheesy in the worst kind of way. Yeah. And to that element, like, I think that the, a lot of those character beats and uses of the villains, and again, I hate to keep comparing the two, but like, I just think they smoothed a lot of those out into, yeah. uh, you know, what, what they, they got a better sense of, and maybe it's just confidence. I think then it was confidence in the project and confidence in the character and confidence in Raimi's vision for it that, um, you know, Raimi probably would never have, instead of the Quest Arrow space testing suit, he probably would have concocted a, a, a scene that was not unlike uh, the hospital sequence where uh, where um, Norman, not Norman, um, Alfred Molina's uh, arms wake up, essentially, you know, yeah. and it leans into the horror of uh, Otto is the name I was trying to think of, uh, where, where it leans into the horror aspects that Raimi pulled together. I bet you if, if given the freedom uh, and not having all the input from studio heads who, who needed Spider-Man to do well. Uh, he probably would have been able to concoct a better sequence that explains how uh, Norman's testing this suit and working with the government and probably come up with something a little more, a little more original. Yeah. And I can see that because 
Sam Raimi is a, a creative guy. And when you give him the time, I mean, the guy can create wonders, you know, that again, going back to Spider-Man two, it's one of the greatest Spider-Man movies ever made. We're going to find out with Dr. Strange in the multiverse. Uh, yeah. I'm excited for that one. Um, out of all these sequences and of course ones that aren't even listed, what's your worst scene or moment in this film? Um, mine is Macy Gray uh, performing at the, <laughs> at the parade. Uh, it's just one of those elements where you should know how dated it's going to be, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, Cause she wasn't even big when it came out. No, at this point in time, not at all. <laughs> and, uh, and in the, in the um, parade fight, there's that moment where the kid is looking up at the goblin or at the balloon as it's falling. And that takes like 15 minutes. <laughs> Where Spider-Man saying, come on, kid, move. Yeah. And his hair, the windswept hair. And, uh, and yeah, the woman know. yelling, someone save him. Why aren't you? Yeah. Right, 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 right. So yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll single out those elements from, uh, <laughs> from the parade. They should have had Nickelback there. That would have made it much better. Agreed. Listen, <laughs> never going to go against more Nickelback. <laughs> said no one ever um <laughs> i think for me it's it's norman's boardroom breakdown I think. okay it just it comes across as batman 89 for me yeah, yeah. best performance this is easy it's willem defoe right no i say toby really? i'm giving it i'm giving it to toby okay. yeah okay uh you you make your case for willem go ahead well i just he's just going for it in this movie and it totally works. It totally fits his fits the tone. Even in the scenes that I don't like that feature him, he's wonderful. I think he just fully commits to the crazy of this character and then perfects it in no way home. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think um, that's why I give him best performance. And for me, I have to go back. I have to say Toby because he's the blueprint now. Like he, he is the, the model for how Peter Parker should be played. Mm-hmm. And so when the other actors come up with different spins on it, they're really starting at him and then figuring out how they can make what he did their own. So for Andrew, he tried to make him a little bit cooler, you know, a little bit more um, emo outcast kind of thing, yeah. uh, as opposed to, you know, helpless book nerd. Um, and then Tom, I think, has found a, the really great balance between uh, he's got friends, you know, he's not a complete nerd uh, kind of thing. Uh, the girls like him, but he um, is penis Parker. He is penis Parker for true. Uh, but where he feels left out in his unusual situation uh, is not feeling part of the overall uh, Avengers team, you know, always trying to prove himself to the heroes where he's constantly, I think always going to feel like the, like the younger, the younger, the kid brother, you know, who's kind of nipping at the heels of Iron Man and Captain America and stuff like that. The Um, brothers. And this is a big reason why I think that the change at the end of no way home, where everyone is going to forget him is going to allow him to really reinvent himself uh, as someone different, someone who's more mature, someone who isn't uh, iron boy, junior, you know, and yeah. the way that he got introduced into the MCU, they've wiped the slate clean uh, in a very creative way and have now given him the chance to, to to put his own stamp fully on who that character is. But but whenever I go back and, and rewatch, especially one, especially Raimi's one, I'm reminded, uh, you know, with, with Toby chasing the bus 
and and getting on and just feeling the weight of everybody looking at him of just like you nerd you know <laughs> i was like oh he really he just nails peter uh and you know everyone everyone working on that movie would have told you that no one cares about spider-man if you don't care about peter and i think i think toby does an incredible job of making you care about peter yeah i when i think about the character of spider-man it's really the character of peter parker that i'm talking mm -hmm. about you yeah know? for sure um yeah, I, I I can't fault you for that choice for Tobey Maguire. Again, we've had three Spider-Men and they are all amazing. They are. They really are. Yep. And I love that when we saw them all together in No Way Home, their differences stood out, you know, as they shared scenes. They yeah. stayed true to who they were uh, and and their deliveries and jokes and everything about them was still unique to to who they were to who they are and who they were which i think and is phenomenal my fingers are crossed that andrew garfield will come back at some point never know yeah never, never know. know stranger things have happened yes that's true um last category or one of the last categories we've got here and we'll kind of speed through this uh if harry and peter have been friends for several years now how come this is the first time he is meeting norman it just seems weird that makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> and I never thought of that until you mentioned it in this thing. But yeah, absolutely. They should have met at some point. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's boggled my mind for years. Like you've been friends with this guy since you were like six, at least. And yeah. you've never met his dad. That's, that's odd. It's not like an absentee father or anything no. like that. Like Norman's been around. Yeah. Yeah. That makes no sense. That's how pretty come, funny though. How come harry hits on his best friend's biggest crush look it's just not a cool move i i totally get it though if it's different if she's into him and she initiates it but it's not he's kind of snide about it kind of goes behind his back and it never really seems like she's really into him i get it's in the comics or at least it's in the animated tv show i grew up loving but still yeah i mean in character i think they're trying to establish that eventually uh harry's going to become an antagonist mm -hmm. so he's a bit he's a bit smarmy yeah. and maybe in the moment maybe they looked at franco and thought like oh you could play smarmy really well let's lean heavily into it and rewrite this a bit <laughs> to let you play to your strengths um but it is unusual it is a, it is a strange choice in a movie like this yeah uh next one i have we've already gone over like why would the military back something that looked like the green goblin but whatever um how could does be weird. could be weirder it, it could be. Um, how does Peter's high school peers not suspect him of being Spider-Man after the school fight? Like he does like a backflip <laughs> over somebody, not even looking at them. He shoots his web. Someone's got to see that in the lunchroom. Like right. <laughs> there's someone in that universe that has a conspiracy theory on Reddit that is just like this guy, <laughs> this guy is Spider-Man. Right. No way. There's a great line at the end of No Way Home when uh, Michelle is going to commit to the spell. And she said, um, I'm, you know, you better come find me. If not, I'm just, I'm just going to figure it out myself again. I did it before. And it's like, <laughs> there's always so many clues to Peter. You know, he does a <laughs> terrible job of hiding who he really is. Uh, <laughs> so when he disappears at key moments, you know, and, and has to come back and, and, uh, you know, prove that he was like in the spot the whole time sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, after that fight scene, some people should have been like, you can't do that. You ha you shouldn't be able to do all the things you just did. Yeah. Like how did you, you looked like this 
like two days ago, and now right. you're doing th- eh, this. Doesn't line up. Something's <laughs> off here. Well, they oh, stopped you- going to school after a while, right? They're not there anymore. <laughs> so. uh, how do the wrestling promoters not know that that is Spider-Man after they gave him <laughs> the name and they saw his face? <laughs> right? Like, yeah. Bruce Campbell should be like, I, I, I invented that dude. Again, somewhere in that universe. He is in there, probably in his 60s, yelling at the TV screen saying, I gave him his name. Right, right. (laughs) Being one of those guys. And then he doesn't recognize him when he tries to get into the show, you know, with a ticket uh, in in the next movie. (laughs) (laughs) I love the Bruce Campbell universe in there. That's fantastic. How does Norman, again, not become the prime suspect in all these murders and everything that's going on with this company? It's beyond me. Yeah. The movie just doesn't address it. I think should have been suspect number one. Well, yeah. you know, because uh, Jonah is so busy promoting Spider-Man as a menace, the, ah. the police are deceived and they are to believe that Spider-Man is the root cause of all things going wrong in the, in the, in the city at that point. So, and, and you can't sue him because it's liable. Correct. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and the last one I have is how come only the other members of the board get obliterated by that bomb <laughs> and no one else close to it. Was it, it just made no sense to me. Does the bomb have like targets and that's how it works. Or that's like, my, that's my takeaway from that is that the, they were facing a certain way <laughs> or the bomb was facing a certain way that spared everybody. else. He threw it perfectly. <laughs> or, you know, they were uh, expendable cast members and we needed the other people to be around for the rest of the series. You know, that one rings a bell. That one <laughs> might be it. I think that's the one. Yeah. Uh, but out of all these, which one is the one that just you scratch your head at? Uh, Norman not being a suspect uh, in, in any way, shape or form for the number of crimes that are happening. And again, it's a comic book movie. I know that. But. Just a simple line of dialogue where one person was like, we should check into Norman Osborne. (laughs) He was developing a suit that looks exactly like this. (laughs) That that is our suit flying in the sky right now. Right, right, right. Um, And look, this category is all in good fun. It is not serious at all. But I I completely agree with you. It's Norman. (laughs) Like, How is he not a suspect? Come on. That's really funny. Uh, MVP of the movie. Um, I went first last time. I'll let you have the floor. Who's your MVP for this? Sam Raimi. Sam, I agree. Sam Raimi is the MVP of this. Um, You know, so many of these early superhero efforts, when they found the right director, it got them off on the, it got them off on the right foot, whether it be Richard Donner, uh, kind of establishing, no matter your thoughts on, on Superman, you, you could say that he, carved out how Superman can be told on the big screen completely. Um, and, and Burton put his stamp all over Batman, you know, and it wasn't until Nolan came around to show you that it could be done differently. Mm -hmm. And then Snyder came around and told you it could be done even more differently. And now Matt Reeves is coming around and telling you it could be done (laughs) even more differently. differently. Yeah. But you know, let's use daredevil as, as an example. Um, I can't even think of the name of that. Mark Steven Johnson, I think is Mark Steven Johnson. Yes. Who did daredevil. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for a while, his inability uh, to really perfect those characters probably put them behind a wall, you know, that stopped them from advancing. 
say what you will about Brian Singer, but his first stab at telling an X-Men story did a, a lot of great work, a lot of heavy lifting for how you could do those characters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think director choices is crucial uh, in, in a lot of those instances. Um, going over to the MCU, you know, like Kenneth Branagh was the right choice to do Thor, you know, to start off with. John Favreau was the perfect choice to do Iron Man. Uh, they they found the right people for all these. Louis Leterrier was probably not the right choice to do the Incredible Hulk, and that set that character back. So um, for all the creative choices that Sam got to make uh, in the first one, and for the way that he wrangled it all together while maintaining the uh, the heart and the authenticity of the character, and then the way that he was able to amplify all the things that he likes to do without losing focus uh, of the characters. And the goal of the franchise, I I consider him to be the MVP of that series. Yeah. And well said. I I couldn't have have said it better. I will just add that I think his style brings such life to this timeless origin tale without and without his vision. I don't I don't know if we are in the superhero boom that we currently live in. Right. You know, this again, like I said at the beginning of, of this episode. I give this movie full credit for the era that we live in. And mm-hmm. I think it's because of Sam Raimi's vision and expert direction. Well, it's a significant point of the book that I wrote, which is just, if you trace it back to Marvel's push to license their characters out and to make individual movies about them, it's the success of Spider-Man that showed the industry um, and convinced Marvel that this could work. You know, Blade did okay and Mm -hmm. X-Men did good, but neither of those were the ones that Marvel pointed out and said like, all right, this is going to work. But when Spider-Man made a hundred million in its opening weekend, Mm -hmm. that's when Marvel studios or the people who were trying to get behind building Marvel studios said, yeah, yeah, we're onto something. We've got all these characters. If we do this the right way, we can, we can continue to find sustained, success and uh they just wanted to stop licensing the characters out they wanted to keep them in house so that's what they eventually did they got to that point and now we have the mcu yes we do Uh, yes we do and spider-man's in it yes thank goodness but at the end of the day why would you recommend this movie oh because it's almost like if you are an aficionado of the dominant genre today which is comic book movies um, and I'm 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 an unapologetic uh, fan of of that type of storytelling. Like it's crazy to me that as someone who grew up religiously reading comics, but also loved movies, that my two passions have intersected in the dominant genre in Hollywood right now. So if you love these movies and you truly want to understand uh, why they work, you know, and and how we got to this point, you 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 have to go back and watch the initial Spider-Man because it's so much of the, of the things that are great about superhero movies now started there. And it's not um, one of those, like I know a lot of times we send people back to go watch old films, especially classic films from like the sixties and seventies to say like, Hey, if you really want a blueprint for how, you know, uh, star Wars was made, go watch the seven samurai or something like that. Um, and it can feel like homework, you know, where you're enduring, this yeah. isn't homework. It's still, it still holds up. It's still wildly entertaining, you know, for, for so many different reasons. And, uh, and I think you'd be stunned, especially if anyone's listening to this and they haven't watched it for the very first time, you'll be stunned at the number of things that are happening in comic book movies now that trace their origin back to Sam Raimi's first movie. 
completely agree. Well said. Completely agree. But that is it for this week's show. Sean, thank you so much for coming on. It is it's always a pleasure to have you on and a blast to talk, whether it's DC or Marvel with you. Um, where can people find you? Uh, Cinema Blend. Uh, I'm mainly writing for and running a website called Cinema Blend. We do a lot of uh, analysis videos on the Cinema Blend YouTube uh, page where I show up. I'm breaking down the Moon Knight series currently, and we'll uh, keep transitioning into we're going to do a lot of stuff for Doctor Strange as it's coming up. Nice. Um, I have a podcast, a weekly podcast called Real Blend. It's a R-E-E-L. Uh, B-L-E-N-D, where we talk a lot about what's happening in film on a weekly basis. And we have uh, interviews with directors. Um, and then if you enjoyed all this Spider-Man talk, I have a book coming out in November. Uh, and it's called With Great Power, uh, How Spider-Man Conquered Hollywood During the Golden Age of Comic Book Movies. And it gets into uh, a lot of what we talked about here, like how superhero movies are sort of the dominant genre right now and how a lot of what's happening uh, in them and a lot of the successes can be traced back to Spider-Man. And so I tried to trace his entire Hollywood history, but make relevant points to uh, lessons that people learned through the Raimi films, through the Mark Webb films, uh, and then through Sony and Marvel uh, creating that historic partnership to let Spider-Man go over to the MCU uh, and, and just sort of put it into the context of everything happening in, in, uh, in, in the MCU to this point. And I, I am... First off, huge fan of Cinema Blend. Love that website. I love the Real Blend podcast. It it as a weekly listen for me, um, and I am chomping at the bit to read with great great power after Thank reading you. your release of Snyder Cut book. Uh, which Thank was you, fantastic. Uh, um, I'll say this so, uh, personally: I really do feel that with the Snyder Cut book, I had no clue what I was doing, um, and I feel much more confident that with great power is is a better book. <laughs> I think it's a much better book. I, I think that it came together in a way that I'm really proud of. I got a, a lot of fantastic interviews and some really, really great stories uh, with insight into all of it. And um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm much happier with the way that this one turned out. I can't wait to read it, man. Uh, I'll be back later on this month to discuss something that is also celebrating a uh, 20th anniversary. It is a poster that is right behind me right now. Uh, <laughs> But until then, be sure to hit that subscribe button, leave a comment, rate us, and while you're at it, give me a follow over on Instagram and TikTok at Ben Davis Movie Podcast to stay up to date with all the latest content that I have for you guys. Anyways, until next time, stay classy.